1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. And today I will be talking to Eve Darian-Smith about her important new book, Global Burning, Rising Anti-Democracy and the Climate Crisis, published by Stanford University Press in April of this year. Eve, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Jeff, for having me. It's delightful to be here.
1: Yeah, and thank you for joining me. Uh, can you tell our listener, Can you start us off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself?
0: Certainly can. Um, some of you may say, "Where's my accent from?" And um, you have every right to ask as you're listening. My family. I'm from Australia. My family thinks I've lost my Australian accent, um, but I am Australian, and I studied um, history. And fine arts, and then I did a law degree in Australia just by sort of introducing myself a little bit and my sort of um, training. And then I came to the United States after practicing corporate law, which was not my cup of tea. Um, I came to the United States and I did a PhD in anthropology. So I'm a very sort of um, interdisciplinary scholar, and I like to make connections across different kinds of literatures and ideas and times And I'm now, you know, chairing a Department of Global Studies, which is a very, very interdisciplinary and new emerging field that engages with pressing global issues. So that sort of just gives you a little bit of my um, intellectual background, as I say, and um, certainly to identify my accent.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Eve. And uh, you know, if we start with the you know the accent, uh, you know, for being from Australia and you know connected to, to global burning, and now of course you're living in California, in Southern California, um, you know, near UC Irvine. Uh, these two locations are are focused on in your book, uh, as well as Brazil. Um, with your personal connections to to you know California and Australia, was writing this book at all motivi- motivated by these personal connections?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, So, you know, I grew up in Australia. I've been in the United States for about 30 years. And in fact, you know, the sort of germs of this book occurred when I visited my family in December in 2019. Some of the listeners today may remember that this was a period in which enormous, enormous um, bushfires, we call them bushfires in Australia, not wildfires, bushfires erupted across the whole country. And it seemed that the whole of Australia was alight with these enormous, Firestorms in Australia. The the eucalyptus trees, what we call gum trees, are very high ignition fuel, um, and these fires can rip into um, bushland and, uh, in fact, create a sort of fireball that travels ahead of a fire um, front, as it were. Anyway, I was there visiting family. It's summertime in Australia in December 2019. The fires broke out. Um, very distressing because many of the fires uh, were on the edge of Sydney and big major cities. So it wasn't just in the far bushlands in the, in the, uh, away from, from towns and um, residence, residential areas. And then I came back to California after visiting my family and um Quickly, COVID took over, but then further uh, huge, huge catastrophic fires broke out um, throughout 2020 in Australia, in in California as well, Um, and there'd been enormous fires the year before. So yes living uh in california where fire is a constant constant threat um and everybody has you know water and uh, basic supplies typically in the boot of their car the back of their car and coming from australia where fire has always been a constant threat it's the driest continent in the world Um, these two places that i have lived and loved for many years um, do feature highly in the book and as you say i then Look at Brazil and the fires burning in the Amazon rainforest there as my sort of third field site, that sort of grounds the book in the three contexts. Yeah,
1: thanks, even. I remember um, you know being in. Touch with you at one point when you described ashes, you know, on, on your and on your home, and uh, I, I think it's it's you know it's easy for us to I think in some ways who aren't experiencing this to not even to, I don't know, to not fully realize uh, the the I don't know the scale of this that uh, you could actually have ashes raining down on your house even if you're not like right up next to uh, the fire itself.
0: Absolutely. And as people, you know, experience up and down California, Northern California, Southern California regularly, the fire season uh, now extends around the year. Um, I actually just had a fire called the Coastal Fire Breakout literally three, four days ago and took down about 24 houses about two hour, two miles from my house. Um, it is a constant threat and a, a alarm. And you don't even... Yeah, the scale is enormous because you can be many miles um, from the front of these out of control, control fires and the clouds uh, come, uh, the smoke, and, the, and it can go into nighttime. It feels like you're in the middle of the night, even though it's the middle of the day, as the white ash snow falls around you. So it can be extremely eerie, extremely alarming. To be both obviously very close to these uh, huge fires, but even as you say, if you're miles away, you still experience it as a sort of a- apocalyptic kind of feel to these uh, out of control fires that we're experiencing increasingly um, in many places around the world, in terms of intensity and um, uh, the suffering and cause of damage that they do.
1: Thanks, Eve, and. Um, you know I wanted to ask you a question about the image um, on on the, the book cover before we kind of get into the the actual text of the book um, because you know it does give uh, people an in- uh, you know or a look at you know the results of these fires did you have much input on the uh, on the book design or the book cover design and uh, if so how did you um, kind of come up with this or, or contribute to this?
0: Actually, you know, um, I was delighted. I was standing by to contribute ideas and so on. Um, and, of course, I sort of indicated roughly, but Stanford University Press did a fantastic job on the cover. So I really can't um, claim uh, fame for, for the design, though I'm thrilled with the design itself. So, no, I didn't really have that much input. And as soon as they showed it to me, I said, yeah, it's fantastic.
1: it's it's nice and helpful when they come up with a nice design or an important or you know um, representative design um i know uh you know, other, other people I've interviewed here have, uh, like, it's a photo they took or, or something that they brought back. Um, but, yeah, I think the cover really does impart the, the severity of, of the climate crisis. And, uh, uh, you know, for our listeners, I'm sure you'll be able to see this on, on the web, web page. Um, you know, but the lettering has sort of flames through it uh, over this uh, black and white barren land. So um, really powerful. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I want to, uh, you know, yeah, we can get into the, the, the text of the book now. Um, you know, for those who have not read uh, or have not had a chance to read your book, and it is very new uh, at this point, I think about three weeks old. Um, can you talk a bit about what it means to think about fires and to think with and through fire?
0: Sure. So just as sort of as a, as a general introduction, I was... Um, uh, Keen to connect different kinds of um, information that was coming across my computer slash you know kitchen table, as it were, um, and to try and think about fires not just as discrete uh, events. You know, it's not just the fire over there in Australia or the fires um, burning the uh, Amazon rainforests in um, uh, uh, Central America, South America. Um, and it's not just the fires in Southern California. What I was trying to do was say that there's something bigger, uh, sort of political, social, economic conditions um, around the world that should try and push us to think about these fires being somehow interconnected, as I say, not as discrete events, because uh, all the climate science um, up to this date, typically talks about a you know a fire. It gives it a name. It says how many hectares has burnt, how many buildings or dwellings have burnt, how many people may have lost lives, and so on. Um, and that's just one way of of sort of charting or um, marking catastrophic fires and the scale of them. But I was keen to go deeper than just the sort of materiality and the um, suffering caused by fires to look at why we are experiencing this increasing number of such catastrophic fires around the world. What are the social, political, and as I say, economic conditions that have brought us to this point? Now, we know that human-driven climate change – can no longer be denied, uh, despite what uh, some uh, political leaders and social media platforms would still like to claim, Um, and that fires are uh, escalating in numbered intensity because of human-driven climate change. But again, that in and of itself wasn't sufficient for me to think about um, the conditions that's fostering these fires and so that's what I in my introduction I I look at fires as I think we've mentioned you've mentioned Jeff thank you I look at fires in 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 the United States and California in Brazil and specifically the fires that have burnt extraordinary swaths of rainforest and the catastrophic fires in Australia Um, and I look at these three sites and say what is it that connects them what is it that's about these different uh, places that's similar and um, we can join the dots as it were. And so I urge in the introduction for us to think about fires, as I say, not just as statistics, um, but thinking about, uh, thinking with fire and with with, with that phrase, with fire, um, I'm very anxious for us to think about our relationship to nature and the environment more generally. Um, very much in, in the Global North and Western thinking, we typically think about humans and the environmental nature as discrete sort of arenas, right? Humans um, have the hubris to think that we own nature, we own environments, we possess them in law, we manage them, we also can exploit them, um, use their the resources that we find in environments, mining, wood, forests, water, and so on, um, that humans are the superior force, as it were, and that we actually, there's a binary or a dualism between humans and nature. And when I say, or when I argue in the book about with the need to think with fire, I'm trying to break down that binary, that fire is part of us as a human species, um, that we are part of nature, nature is part of us. It's not a, a, a sort of strict um, modernist thinking of a, of this binary, of division, of a hierarchy. Um, but that actually, in fact, we are uh, absolutely indebted to environments and natural resources for our very survival. Um, and that in fact, if we um, see the trajectory of, of human-driven climate change, Um, If the human species is actually destroyed, nature and the environment will ultimately prevail, right? Even if we as humans are not here. Um, And so I'm keen to sort of punch up and, and as many, many other scholars are now talking about and activists, environmental activists and indigenous activists and scholars really trying to break down that human nature, human environment uh, binary and think with fire as part of our coexisting on the planet together, with nature, humans with nature. Um, and I also argue in the introduction that we need to think through fire, so with fire and through fire. And by that phrase, I'm, I'm arguing that we need to understand catastrophic fires as a global phenomenon, right, It's and then they're connected, um, and that they're intercontinental in the impacts that they have, right? They have intercontinental impacts. So smoke um, from these catastrophic fires swirls up into um, atmospheres, can be raining ash, you know, from um, the Australian fires. You could see from from outer space, the spiraling smoke storms, and then through atmospheric flows, the ash gets moved um, onto uh, across oceans and onto different continents, uh, and similarly, the ash falls into oceans, gets picked up into ocean um, uh, currents around the world, and so on. So. Thinking through fire is trying, in an effort to try and transcend our conventional notions of space, and our conventional notions of space, at least in the in the current moment, are typically we think of you know I'm Australian or you're um, from Mexico or you're Spanish or someone's from Brazil. We typically think in nation state sort of um, territory. You know, uh, relationships, national relationships. And I'm trying to say, no, we need to think beyond and uh, across the, uh, the boundaries and the typical geopolitical spatial formations that we think about in terms of international uh, relations and international politics. And then I also, in thinking through fire, I think and this comes back to my training as an historian, we need to think through intergenerational time, right? So that the impacts of these catastrophic fires, the causes of their coming into being at this point in time, really do link to long, long histories of colonialism and extractive capitalism and degradation of environments that really have been going on for some hundreds of years, um, when we talk about catastrophic fires today, we typically do not evoke a long historical trajectory in order to understand how we got to the place we are today. And so my book is trying to say, no, uh, extractive capitalism has been going on for hundreds of years. The scale of extractive capitalism today is mind-blowing, but it is a process that you know humans have exploited uh, natural resources for many hundreds of years. Um, and we need to think across time in terms of generations, not only in the causes of these catastrophic fires, but also in the intergenerational trauma and suffering that these fires cause, right? Um, Again, death is, uh, you know, material, physical death is one horrifying result of fires. But when you have the burning of entire landscapes that contain for many people different kinds of memories, uh, evokings of different kinds of religious relationships to the land, um, to people who are buried in certain places. Um, the impacts and the suffering caused by fire is an extraordinarily intergenerational uh Phenomenon, and I think that we need to think about that as we think both about the horrifying causes of these fires and their long-term impacts, and trying to get away from the immediacy of the moment, trying to have a much more long historical uh, framework uh, for understanding the fires of today.
1: Yeah, thanks, even. Uh, you know, a couple of things. You know, come up. Um, you know, that I want to you know sort of follow up on. Uh, related one is. You talked about extractive capitalism, so I'm I'm interested in you know where corporate interests in this case I'm you know I'm I'm curious about you know the role of media, um, but also uh, you know the impact of of this fires and climate climate change on indigenous peoples. Um, you know this is a, a part of the genocide studies uh, network, and um, you know cultural genocide does come up in your book. So, um, the first question I want to ask you is uh, about the media and. Early in your book, you describe how the fires and the destruction they wreak in uh, had garnered significant attention in this change, as you mentioned, uh, with the emergence of the global pandemic. Uh, in fact, you write in your preface, quote, amid the unfolding short and long-term challenges of the pandemic, this book is a call not to lose sight of the much bigger catastrophe before us, climate change and its imminent threat to all species, including human beings. You know, the these massive deadly and destructive fires, like as you mentioned, you can see them from space. Uh, It's difficult for the corporate media to ignore the visuals, right? The visual of these fires. Um, But I wonder if broader climate change and the disproportionate impacts are more out of sight, out of mind, Um, you know, with corporate media, at least partially responsible, which makes me wonder, you know, does the media or corporate media in particular have vested interests in not presenting this more nuanced view, this more comprehensive view that you describe in your book? And they're really just showing us how to think about fires, but not with and through. Uh, are there interests there that, you know, that the media is catering to rather than to human interests?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I could go on and on about corporate media. Um, I mean, listeners are probably more than aware, but corporate media, you know, is in the hands of a very, very small number of huge multinational corporations. Um, And of course, Murdoch uh, News, Murdoch was an Australian um, and based in Australia and now owns and runs Fox News. I mean, there are there are corporate media platforms that really do govern um, and control and manage mainstream news uh, production, but that's a that's a sort of side note to what you're asking. I do think that fires, catastrophic fires, are very very um, uh, easily picked up by by corporate news because they are a violent, destructive, like powerful uh, images. Um, they make good copy. Um, as as journalists would say, they're very exciting and very fearful to watch. They're very uh, uh, appropriate for the very fast-paced news cycles that corporate media run on. Um, so that's one thing, but the, the 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 bigger sort of structural issues and political, cultural, economic conditions over long periods of time that have created the human-driven climate change that we're all um, uh, dealing with today, a lot of that doesn't get picked up by the media because it's not spectacular, right? It's not spectacular like a fire. And here I'm thinking of um, seeping toxins out of nuclear waste into water tables. And I'm thinking of um, the the lessened uh, spring birds that uh, Rachel Carson talked about so long ago in the Silent Spring Those are the sort of drip, 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 slow, slow, slow environmental degradations that completely are missed by corporate media. They do not make good coverage um, and conveniently, conveniently, though this is sort of one of the points I'm trying to make in my my book. it's a very convenient uh, reaction by corporate media because actually corporate media is not in the business of telling ordinary people about the extraordinary devastation of our natural world um, at this point, many of which is sort of put under the radar. A lot of it happens uh, over there, somewhere beyond the global north, in poorer countries where the media is not so prevalent, and we certainly in the United States are not so interested in, um, and that's one of the biggest problems about thinking through human-driven climate change: that we only see and experience in the rich countries of the industrial north elements of what uh, has actually happening, and of course. Catastrophic fires are increasing in the global north as are catastrophic, horrifying floods. And it's really only in the last 10 years that people, ordinary people, on the ground people have taken an interest in climate change uh, as they more and more um, uh, increasingly experience some of the elements of climate change. But for the vast majority of the world's populations, climate change has been a very, very significant and and increasingly alarming reality for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, many more more years. Um, So yes, getting back to your question about corporate media, corporate media is is highly vested in not showing us um, the horrifying devastation of uh, climate change, in its more non-spectacular formations, many of which, of course, you and I can't see. I mean, toxins leaking into water tables is below the earth. We can't see it. Um, And that is a very, very big problem for any media uh, channels, because if you can't see it, then it doesn't really exist.
1: Right. And... um... You know, something you mentioned about, you know, the increase, uh fires and intensity in the global north uh, made me actually think about a, another question related to the impact on indigenous peoples. Um, so let me ask that and then I'll, I'll come back and add another element to it. And so, um, you know, I mentioned you make connections between uh, the fires and climate change and cultural genocide in your book. And, you know, you write, quote, Cultural genocide is not typically something thought about or acknowledged in the developed countries of the global north, but for a good portion of the planet's population, emotional and epistemological violence can be as damaging as physical violence. This means that we need to check our biases and open our minds to the different ways suffering from climate change and catastrophic wildfires may be experienced and borne by others different from ourselves. And so I want to ask you to talk a little bit about the impact of fires and and maybe climate change more broadly on indigenous peoples in, in Brazil, Australia, and the U S but I want to add another element. Um, cause I don't know if this is still the case, but I, I recall a time when, when there were wildfires say in California, there was this idea that, oh, it, the wildfires, it's only affecting the very wealthy, their big giant houses are being burned and then they rebuild them or the insurance rebuilds them or whatever the case. Um, but I know you, you know, the way you talk about in your book and, and what you've been discussing so far that it's It's not just the wealthy. It's also other marginalized groups who are impacted, in some cases, disproportionately impacted. So um, if you want to talk about that a little as well.
0: Sure. Um, In terms of indigenous peoples, to the degree that one can speak, you know, as indigenous peoples as one block, which, of course, is not the case. There are many, many, many different um, indigenous communities around the world, um, but they certainly have been disproportionately impacted um, in the three countries of my study, but also in many other places. Uh, and that's you know goes back to uh, colonial legacies, historical legacies um, of oppression and suppression of indigenous worldviews, um, marginalisation of them from mainstream society uh, in many many places around the world. Um, so you know these these fires, which uh, uh, do impact many many people. Uh, they do dis- very very clearly, disproportionately impact um, Indigenous communities who, as I say, are already on, on the margin structurally uh, in terms of resources and education and so on. They're hit hard by these fires. and Typically, you know, they're, they're often in communities that don't have firefighting equipment readily at hand that are rather marginal and poor to begin with. Um, And, you know, as marginalized peoples already, um, the suffering of indigenous peoples is very much overlooked uh, in terms of, um, again, providing resources uh, to to, uh, ameliorate the devastation caused by fires. In Australia, for instance, um, the huge mining business, you know, Australia's economy is largely built uh, today on mining and extraction of of natural minerals. These mining companies have left extraordinarily huge, gaping, gaping, open wounds on the environment um, and have... All the science points to that these mining corporations, which do very little cleanup, if any, after they um, have have gouged the soil uh, looking for minerals. But a a lot of the the impact of these mining corporations have exasperated the conditions for fires that then sweep across the landscape uh, and burn, uh, you know, Indigenous communities' um, resources in terms of access to water and to... uh, Lands where they collect uh, their food and hunt and so on. Um, But this, you know, Australia is an enormous country and it's rather an empty country, and a lot of this suffering and violence goes on away from city centers in the deep outback. Um, In Brazil, which is a sort of different scenario, um, Bolsonaro, the extreme right, leader of the of, of Brazil, um, voted in in 2019, he has aggressively um, scaled up the deforestation of the um, Amazon rainforest, um, opening it up for logging and mining and cattle grazing. Um, and that kind of uh, aggressive, um, active burning of the rainforest, which is just extraordinarily horrifying when you think about it. Um, means that farmers and miners and loggers are going deeper and deeper and deeper into areas where indigenous communities are impacted for the first time um, to the degree that, you know, their whole, their whole world and their rainforests are logged. And some of these indigenous communities are, you know, moved off the land at gunpoint. um, And some of these indigenous communities are very, very, um, very, fighting back for their land, and many have lost their lives. Um, So certainly they're being disproportionately impacted as well. So the book, my book is very um, sensitive. I think, at least I hope I am sensitive to the disproportionate impact of these catastrophic fires on peoples, as I say, who have historically been marginalized from mainstream society, and points to another dimension that is often not talked about with regards to human-driven climate change, which is the racial dimensions of environmental degradation. So, you know, with the Black Lives Movement matter movement, Black Lives Matter movement, you know, we've been reintroduced to the notion of structural racism. Uh, and I like to argue in my book, uh, I push the, the, that all environmental degradation is also racially um, charged, that there is um, environmental racism at play here as well, um, because it's not just, of course, indigenous communities, um, but it's all peoples that are from the poorer socioeconomic uh status and places living on the fringes that have limited resources, as I say, to fire equipment, to fire resources, to hospitals, uh, and to rebuilding their communities. So environmental racism is a theme that runs deeply in the book.
1: Yeah, thank you, Eve. Um, Yeah, there's a number of things uh, that you mentioned there, but um, if we you know, go back to the extractive capitalism, which, um, you know, you started to, you talked about in, uh, in Australia, um, and elsewhere, um, you know, I wanted to you know, think a little bit about the role, uh, liberal democracies play, um, you know, cause there's, you know, sort of the anti-democracy movements, there's the already authoritarian countries contributing. Um, and I, and I'm just, you know, curious about, you know, where liberal democracies play, because uh, even as things intensify, of course, they've been building to this in some ways historically. And so, on on page 94 of your book, you you include a Venn diagram with three bubbles. And uh, in one bubble, you have free market authoritarianism, uh, a second bubble, climate change, and in a third extractive capitalism. And then in the middle is fire, Um, where all three overlap and with neoliberal economic policies being core for some liberal democracies, uh, you know, where ultimately do liberal democracies fit into this figure?
0: It's a very good question. And, um, you know, in my book, I was anxious to get away from the sort of um, many scholarly debates around what is authoritarianism what is fascism, Um, what is liberalism. So I was anxious to not get down that rabbit hole of definitional categorization, Um, but but argue that in the current moment, even in so-called liberal democracies, um, under the very stark neoliberal policies of our current um, political economy, which favor corporate interests, which favor um, global elites, um, that, it, as I say, even within a liberal democracy, there are tendencies and elements of authoritarianism. And by that, I mean of uh, elites in power not being accountable. So I take a very general definition of authoritarianism and argue that there are elements in um, the rising anti-democratic societies that we're seeing around the world, whether it's very, very, very obviously uh, authoritarian like China, or not so much like Hungary or the United States um, or Turkey or Brazil or Australia, um, that there is this element of collusion between corporate interests um, who are making many, 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 many billions of dollars by extracting minerals and natural resources from the land and that these corporate interests are working with opportunistic politicians um, uh, and, and, and financing their campaigns, their political campaigns and, and their elections and basically putting them in as rather puppet um uh, leaders, uh, and that this is a phenomena we're seeing around the world with rising anti-democratic governance that, at a rate that's extremely alarming, right? So even within, as I say, so-called liberal democracies, there is this increasing uh, lack of accountability for uh, political elites, Um to answer their citizens' requests that environmental protections be put in and that we do something about human-driven climate change. So we all know that under Trump, um, in his four years of office, he rolled back 50 years of environmental protections, opened up national parks and monuments and so on for um, uh, mining and drilling and, um, you know, completely allowed... Uh, corporate interests to continue their extraordinary uh, extraction of natural resources. Um, Under President Biden, that's been somewhat um, stopped, not entirely, because Biden has been basically trying to re-establish many of the 50 years of environmental protections that Trump dismantled. Um, But in all countries uh, along this continuum between so-called liberal democracies and authoritarian states, um, there is an increasingly uh, disturbing alliance of corporate interests and global elites, all making an extraordinary amount of money, um, and in the meantime destroying the very planet that we all inhabit. Um, and that's really sort of the sort of connection between it. What I argue in the book: the rise of extreme right uh, governments and the um, escalating crisis of uh, human-driven climate change that manifests in catastrophic fires, but of course it manifests in many, many other environmental degradations, such as bleached coral oceans, um, uh, bleached uh, uh, reefs, uh, rising oceans, pollution that washes air pollution, water pollution that you know uh, impacts all of us, whether we're in wealthy countries in the global north all Global South. And that's our collective future that we have to think through, um, not just what does a government say it's going to do in terms of liberal, protect and, and provide for um, human rights and civil and political rights. It's what is it actually doing with respect to the environment, which actually is um, belongs to everybody on the planet.
1: Agreed. And it, it just makes me think of, uh, you know, something else I'd been thinking about you know, when I read your book, which was, uh, you know, sort of political and social messaging. Um, you know, I, I, on, you know, in one hand, I, I wonder, do we truly appreciate, you know, um, what we are being confronted by and our role in you know creating the situation, um, And then also what we really need to do to, you know, to respond to, to, you know, to address it. And so, you know, there's a a quote I wanted to share from um, a press release from the IPCCs, IPCCs, yes, I almost gave it an extra C, six assessment report, uh, part three from earlier this year. And it says, quote, it's now or never, if we want to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, Without immediate and deep emissions reductions across all sectors, it will be impossible. Climate change is a result of more than a century of unsustainable energy and land use lifestyles and patterns of consumption and production. This report shows how taking action now can move us forward, move us towards, excuse me, a fairer more sustainable world. And, you know, it seems clear to me that significant sacrifices are necessary. And I think this, you know, relates to what you said about like what we're saying and what we're actually doing or what our political leaders are, our governments and so on. Um, it, but, it, you know, it's starkly clear that, you know, quote, things must change and quote, um, and that will entail drastically changing our lifestyles and patterns of consumption. Um, you know, are we receiving um, this needed messaging or what I think is needed messaging um, you know is it quote unquote political suicide uh, to say things as bluntly as I think they need to be said and uh, if so should it matter should leadership take over where you know political it might not be political favorable or politically favorable um, to uh, you know deliver such blunt messages
0: well you know I think that's one of the problems with Most of our political systems, and of course there are many different political systems around the world, but when they're based on um, election politics and and uh, short-term visioning, no one wants to take on climate change because I think it really does require us to change the way we live. And you're absolutely correct. Just as no politician really wants to take on infrastructure, because by the time you get the finances to build the bridge, you're out of office and don't claim or can't claim credit for it, no one wants to take on the long-term planning and strategies that are required if we're going to mitigate what we are facing. So we 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 are facing climate change at an extraordinary level. The, the IPCC. The report really just says it's not over yet, don't lose hope, Uh, we can mitigate it and we can plan, we have the technology and we have the capabilities, we can plan for a livable future if we act now. Um, A very stark, a very important message. But you're absolutely right for many politicians who are living in a much sort of clipped short-term vision, right, and and way of thinking and doing, that they are very, very anxious not to engage with long-term planning for obvious reasons. Um, And... On top of that, on top of the normal problems of, you know, relatively short terms as political leaders, um, you have, as I mentioned just earlier, they're working together with corporate interests who really don't want anyone to have a long-term image at all. So, yes, it is, uh, you know, I don't want to think about... um, it being political suicide. It depends. It depends if you have an ethical, moral compass of any sort. I would hope that all political leaders would take on board the issue of climate change and how it's impacting us and our future generations and do so with integrity and impact and really put uh, a lot of effort and energy in thinking about, you know, renewable energy sources and so on. And it can be done. It's just that for many, many political leaders, there are Heart is not in that direction. And to be fair to Joe Biden, um, you know, he came in uh, fighting strong for climate change mitigation, for renewable energies, for solar power, for wind power, and so on. Um, But the machinations of a very, very divided political landscape in the United States has made it extremely difficult for him to get anything done. So, you know, political leaders can, can say what they want about climate and what we all need to do to the degree that actually they can implement those shifts and changes that are so necessary is a separate uh, issue. But um, I think your question is very good. Uh, for many politicians with short term gains and making lots of money, and that's all they care about, climate change is a topic to be completely avoided.
1: Yes. And um, I mean, that's something I I talk about with my students, uh, you know, because the students are very concerned about this and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, I don't want them to to lose hope. Um, And so I talk about what they can do. Um, I mean, they can obviously continue to participate in activism. Um, but there are, you know, the little things that we can do individually, which, which do have an, uh, you know, an, a collective element to them, uh, even if industry and other things are the more significant contributors. Um, and you know, with that note, uh, and before we do close, I, I you know you mentioned you know how the uh, ipcc report said it's it's not too late uh, and i wanted to read another excerpt uh, from you know the press release about the report and it says quote we are at a crossroads the decisions we make now can secure a livable future we have the tools and know-how required to limit warming i'm encouraged by climate action being taken in many countries there are policies regulations and market instruments that are proving effective if those are scaled up and applied more widely and equitably, they can support deep emissions reductions and stimulate innovation. Uh, and I think that's a it's a very optimistic um, or you know positive a- approach. And uh, you know, I, I know I've said to you before that I think you're really. Uh, Great at, you know, being blunt without sugarcoating it, but also there's an underlying optimism uh, to, to your approach as well. And so I, I was wondering, do the current green activism and intersectional activism and, and the progress that we are seeing, um, does that give you some sense of hope that, uh, that it's not too late?
0: Again, a great question. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I am optimistic. I think we all need to remain optimistic in what can be quite gloomy times. Um, and I think the optimism is um, based upon a sense that people on the ground, in, in smaller communities, in local communities, in cities, are uh, really, you know. Um, taking to the streets. So 2019, uh, before COVID uh, disrupted everybody's capacities to be out in public and march on the streets and so on. But 2019 saw thousands thousands of marching and activism, particularly by young people um, who are so inspiring in the work that they do and the energy they put into what they rightly see as their future and demand from us more senior adults that we need to pay attention to them because they speak for the future, we don't. So I am optimistic. I mean, I think we're going to see some very big different political shifts in the next 10 years or so as the ramifications of human-driven climate change become more and more obvious to people in the wealthier countries of the global north. um, I think we might see some shifts in terms of cities, large, large cities, even cities like LA, taking control of regulations and laws, um, splitting off, as it were, to some degree from the federal you know, governmental levels, particularly if the the president, um, uh, you know, the future presidents of the United States are far right uh, and uh, along the lines of of Trump, if not Trump himself. I think we're going to see different political alignments and realignments is what I'm trying to say. And I think that is driven by people on the ground aggressively, actively saying enough is enough. Uh, that we actually have to do something, we have to do it now. And certainly in my hope and uh, the inspiration I take is from younger generations of just the most incredible uh, young activists um, across all different classes and ethnicities and backgrounds and, and so on, really trying to mobilize and using social media in extraordinary ways. Um, so city to city, trans city, trans regions, Um, Transnational movements, uh, social justice, environmental justice movements are really, I think, spearheading a whole different way that we think about ourselves as political citizens and think about ourselves as politically, economically, socially, culturally related to other peoples beyond our immediate national context.
1: Thank you. I, I think I just thought of how I, I describe, uh, at least for me, is wide-eyed optimism. You know, we we see the uh, the scale, the severity, and the importance, uh, and so we understand what's at stake, but we are still optimistic uh, about it, um, about you know our chances to our our to to mitigate. Absolutely, Jeff. Yes, but
0: the, the optimism also is that we have to get out and we have to vote. Right? We have to vote out these extreme right leaders that are doing such grave injustice processes to us and the the future generations, right? So it's it's not just about marching on the streets, it's about marching on the streets to protect our political and civil rights. Voting them out of power is the first step. That's right.
1: Thank you, Eve. And I I don't know if that, uh, you know, as we wrap up, I don't know if that connects to anything you're working on, but I want to thank you so much for your time and and ask you if you are working on anything currently that our audience could uh, watch out for in the future.
0: Well, um, I've started a new book, and the new book is about um, the sort of interventions of the extreme right into university and college curriculums, and the book is tentatively called Policing the Mind. So look out for that. It won't be uh, available for a year or so, but that's my current project, which I see is very much related also about educating people about climate change.
1: Sounds great. Eva. I look forward to reading it. Um, you know, if I'm still doing this a year from now, maybe we can do this again. Uh, but thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. And and take care.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. Bye-bye. Bye bye.
1: Bye.